That was the J Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans by movie fans. This is Andreas. I am the creator and main editor, also a writer for Films Fatale. Yesterday was the release of my top 100 short films of all time, so please do go check that out. Who else do I have with me? James here, content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I'm going to be a future writer for Films Fatale, and since this episode is being released on July 6th, it is mine and Andreas' birthday. Happy birthday, you two. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I turned 30. I turned 32, so fantastic. The, the youngest of, of us all, Rachel, not in the 30 Club yet, but where can we find you? So along with these old age pensioners here, I write for Films Fatal. <laughs> I, um, I have a column on world cinema and one on lost film, and I am doing great. What are we up to this evening? Well, it's that time of year again. It happens 12 times, so nice and frequently. It's time for the Cinematic Smorgasbord. So the July edition, we had picks that we all give each other. If you're a newcomer, this is how this works. I'll recommend something to one of my other co-hosts. They'll recommend something to me, and etc., etc. I love art house international stuff. Rachel loves golden age stuff. Also international works. James loves indie stuff. So sometimes there's crossover. Sometimes it's completely outside of our comfort zone. And we discover new movies this way. Furthermore, we all tune into something that we share together, kind of like a book club. We ask you at home to also watch with us. So this month was Supernova, which was released in 2020. We're going to get into all of that good stuff next half of the episode but first we're gonna get into what we recommended to one another so we love this time of year it happens 12 times it's just good stuff who wants to go first with their their findings i'll go first okay what did you watch and what were like who recommended it to you so andreas you recommended to me claire denise beau yeah uh, what did you think this was a very interesting film okay For those who haven't heard of it, it takes place with a group of soldiers in the French Foreign Legion. And that is what the movie's about. It's really just this group of soldiers and, you know, their routines, you know, maybe exercises they're doing and just how they relate to each other. And it all pretty much takes place with them in the desert. And, you know, there is a main character who narrates the whole thing and it kind of shows his place amongst the group and kind of his descent from it, so to say. And it was just really fascinating to see these characters interact with each other and the setting of being in the desert. You almost feel how hot it is. Like with how, how well lit just the natural lighting of the sun is in the desert. And it takes place in, uh, I believe it's Africa, correct? Yeah, it takes place in Djibouti. So the director, Claire Denis, has a lot of work. Uh, basically, any geographical setting is its own character in every single movie of hers. She's done a lot of stuff like White Material or Chocolat, where she discusses the idea of colonialism. And yeah, something like this is no different. Uh, what, she t- what she does here is she basically takes Herman Melville's Billy Budd, and applies it to this yeah this military setting and on the loosest level it's an lgbtq plus film because you kind of see the lead character who's played by denny lavon who has these suppressed feelings that that kind of manifest into retaliations 
against uh, against somebody and his troops. So it's it's a very uh, I, I adore this film personally, especially parts that I can't bring up because Rachel, you have not seen this, correct? I have not yet. No. How do we go about the ending without spoiling? It's certainly <laughs> unforgettable and idiosyncratic. I would say. Yeah, well, the whole film has a very balanced tone, and it it occupies a space between, you know, camaraderie and also tension within the different bonds in the group, as well as the you know the the hierarchy of command. And then once you get to the ending, it's a really interesting send off. I, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's like you don't expect it, but it's almost the perfect way to end it. And it's funny after seeing this, I'm pretty sure I think I've seen this before out of context. And I think it might've been in Mark Cousins story of film documentary. Okay. Because I know I've seen it like after I saw it, I was like, this looks familiar, but seeing it in context was just kind of mind blowing because it just sort of happens. You're like, wait, what? And it, it it's almost like an expression of the main character's like last feelings before he like, you know, kind of like exits the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. Don't know, it's, it's, it's just so it's very striking. It's just, yeah, I, don't, I can't really describe it. You just have to see it for yourself. You, it, you just definitely don't see it coming. It's tough to explain without spoiling. One thing I'll say is Claire Denis isn't very explicit with when that happens. So is that even real? Is it before the climax? Is it post? You know, as as a result of repercussions? You don't really know. Is we it also catch glimpses of the setting that, that takes yeah. place in throughout the film. So you don't, yeah, you really don't know when it actually takes place. But other than that, I think, you know, the film is pretty much rooted in a specific mood that kind of allows you to coast through it. It's almost hypnotic. There's also really interesting soundtrack for this movie. Yeah, it's like that almost operatic sound. Yeah. I I love Claire Denis, and I've seen a number of her works. This particular one is almost like her most explorative film uh, aesthetically, because she's usually very upfront. Like, if you watch Chocolat, it's more, like, direct with what you're seeing and what she wants you to, to notice. Or White Material is very explicit. Beau is almost like her most artistic film that I've seen. She's She dabbles in art, but this one especially was, like, very creative from her because she's usually a lot more upfront. But this, this film was just fantastic to look at, to experience. Like, I, I love it. Yeah, it's for sure one of my favorite films of the 90s. And I think we should clarify that when you say Chocolat, that is not the one with Juliette Binoche that people are probably thinking of when you hear that. That is actually very true because I forget that exists. No, it's not the Juliette Binoche, uh, Johnny Depp film from 2000. This is uh, Claire Denis' debut all the way from from the middle of the 80s, I believe. Yeah, it's it's an African film. It's not even... No, it has nothing to do with Juliette Binoche, unfortunately. But she would work with Juliette Binoche eventually. So there is that connection. It's a small world. Yeah, especially in France. Overall, you thought it, like uh, you'd revisit it, you think? What do you think? I might revisit it again. It, it wasn't something that was... It didn't leave that much of a lasting impact, but it's like it's something I'll probably revisit. Like I'll probably take a tour of her entire filmography and go back over this one. Yeah, for me, this is like 
I love a lot of her work, but for me, this is her undeniable opus. And again, it's like one of my favorite films of the 2000s. I'll probably rewatch that final scene again, though. That is for sure. <laughs> it's, without it's without just giving amazing. too much away, if I made like a top 10 favorite musical moments in film, that one. I adore it. And Denny Levant as one of the weirdest, most singular uh, like song and dance performers in film. He's worth checking out more stuff like where he's like, you know, like feeling the music, let's say. He's just so different. He's like Christopher Walken on steroids. Yeah. Otherwise, that was what you had to watch. But what did you recommend to Rachel? Yeah, Rachel, what did I recommend to you? You recommended what I think you said before is one of your very favorite movies, and that is Upstream Color. Oh, yes. yeah. So good. So it's really hard to describe this movie, A, because it's extremely difficult to explain because it's all over the place, but also uh, there's a lot of spoilers involved. It's kind of a sci fi experimental film. And um, I think at its heart, it's really about how we connect to each other and the sort of things that are created when people unite. And so. For the first half of this movie, I have to admit, I was completely repelled. I thought, oh, this is just kind of over-the-top torture. I really don't like this. Um, what is James thinking? And then as it wore on, and I realized what they were actually trying to do and what how the characters interacted with each other, then it really grew on me, and I, I understood. And then it made a lot more sense. Yeah, once it clicks... Mm-hmm. it's just it's one of those films where you actually especially with science fiction you actually feel like you're a part of it where it's like oh so like well, what's a good example so in interstellar let's say I people point movie. out oh, oh yeah that's <laughs> that, that's fair but like you know at the beginning you see what happened because of the result of time travel i kind of like that because even though it's a problem that you don't see how it originally was you see what time travel could hypothetically do. And in this instance, it's not time travel, it's something else. You feel like you're in that position of living with these characters without spoiling what they're actually experiencing. And it's it's quite a beautiful thing. And I think the two leads are excellent in that sort of confusion because they're just as confused as the viewer is for most of the movie. And yet they still manage to put together something that makes sense. It, that's really hard to pull off for an actor. Yeah, it's it's funny because the the real the premise of it is actually really basic. The idea is these characters they're stripped of everything and now they're trying to piece themselves back together. Exactly. While also kind of living within this life cycle of this kind of like parasitic implanting of memories and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's this whole kind of process where all these different characters relate to each other in this cycle of things. It's funny when I um for a while Wikipedia had it pegged as a romantic sci-fi thriller and I was like that is the best way to describe this movie. It is also the thing that would totally throw people off. They're like, "Wait, how do those things go together?" Right now Wikipedia calls it experimental science fiction, which I think is much more accurate cuz Yeah, now, it, now it does, but before it called it that and I was like, "Yeah, you know, that's actually really interesting." It's not even that much of a romance. I mean, there's a couple in it, but I feel like that's sort of beside the point. To me, a romance is all about the couple getting together. It's weird, though, because at the same time, it it's I agree with you, but at the same time, it almost feels like it is because it's like a lot of romances, people kind of try to figure out where did it all go wrong, and there is that kind of friction where it's like, how are we two ships passing in the night we thought we knew one another? But it's as a result of this trying to figure out what's going on independently, but also cohesively. It's uh, mm-hmm. so in a very, very loose sense, it still 
qualifies. But in the grand scheme of things, yeah, it's more sci-fi than anything, let's be honest. Although, can you really give it a genre? <laughs> I mean, sure. it's so, <laughs> so all over the place. True. <laughs> well, the romance also wasn't really in their control. Mm-hmm. For reasons I can't reveal because it would be giving too many spoilers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's predetermined. No, there's also uh, one of the best parts is the character uh, who is known as uh, the Sampler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's this avant-garde world music creator who kind of is at the forefront of controlling this situation at hand. Mm-hmm. And music plays a big role in the movie. I'm sure you probably noticed. Yes. That score is painfully beautiful i adore it it reminded it's weird because i think a lot of other movies have tried to imitate it since there was one movie it really reminded me of but i can't remember which one now but i've heard that score pop up again and again and i think it might have made an impact it's so tough because i did an article last year about what the idea of being on a auteur is like and it's tough because Tim Burton, yeah, Tim Burton's got a signature style, but he still works with the same costume designers, the same set designers, all these people that make it come to life. It's hard to talk about Shane Carruth because he's a he's not a good person. No. But as a filmmaker, he does like pretty much everything. Like he's also starring in it, but he yeah. writes, produces, directs, music, editing cinematography everything is himself and that's like this result that's mind-blowing so unfortunately he's not a great person but as an artist he's unparalleled yeah as much as i respected the movie that was always kind of at the back of my mind so i imagine it must have been a different experience before all that came out yeah unfortunately well yeah well it came out in 2013 yeah Mm -hmm. it's always funny when he does everything himself because you know because you know he plays jeff in the movie so he's one of the leads and i'm just like the fact that he directed it and then he edits it, he's in charge of cinematography. He's putting all this together and it was, and it was done on a shoestring budget too. You know, it was made without anybody knowing, like people didn't know about it until it was announced that it was going to be at Sundance. And it was very anticipated, like whatever his second movie was going to be. Oh yeah. yeah. When it came out, it was like every, like the hype was there. It was really amazing. Also, he actually used a co-editor for this. Uh, David Lowry actually was the co-editor for this movie. Which before is a he kind of got into wow. doing his own features. But yeah, so what did you think? Did, I don't know if you realize this, but did you notice that almost the entire third act is has no dialogue? Really? Yes, yes. It's mostly imagery like visual, like, of yeah. the various motives of the film, which I don't want to go into. It's also it's also just quotes from Henry David Thoreau's Walden. <laughs> yeah, oh so much Walden. Like I didn't notice that until someone uh, said that they're like yeah if you notice it really plays like a silent film towards the third in the third act i was like i didn't even realize that it kind of does doesn't it yeah it's I, I love this film it's one that i would love to revisit time and time and time again look uh primer is great primer is fantastic but for me it's like no contest this is the best thing he's ever done now james would you call this your favorite movie because you mentioned stuff like that before Yes. Okay. This is my favorite movie. It, it was a, it was a bit rough finding out he's not so great of a person, but yeah, this just this movie just had a very big impact on me because it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, like it just made everything click on like how I wanted to appreciate cinema moving forward. And uh, I don't know if um because I remember that was my pick for the social media blurb about my favorite film. Yeah, on social media, we've been answering questions about our film taste lately just for some fun, and we each listed our favorite movies recently, so you should go check that out. 
Yes, mm. I definitely highly check recommend checking that out. But uh, did it make sense when I said that it combines like Lynchian complexity and Malikian simplicity? Yes, and, like, I do. The artistry. Because it yeah. really is quite a simple film at heart. It's just, it's all the bells and whistles that bring it out. And it's great that you bring up David Lynch because one of my all-time favorite movies is Mulholland Drive. And similarly, you get to piece together what you're looking at. Not in the sense of Eraserhead or Inland Empire where they're not meant to really make perfect sense. Both Mulholland Drive and Upstream Color do mean something. But it's like... The first time you watch it, you're completely lost, and it's about revisiting it and being like, oh my god, it makes more sense every time I watch it. It's almost like a miraculous viewing every single time. And those are two of like the only films that I know of that are able to achieve that. So it's not easy. And also a great performance by Amy Simons. Yes, I she was yeah. the standout, unquestionably. Oh, she's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. On that note... So... Yes. What what depressed you this week, Andreas? What's, what, what depressed me this week? Yes. Okay, well, you've been wanting me to watch this film for a while. It's still... We're still in the heat of the pandemic, and watching anything that's similar to, like, a society being shaken up is mm-hmm. tough. So something like Stanley Kramer's On the Beach, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough to see society kind of wobbly or even collapse in on itself due to what could potentially be the end of the world or an actual nuclear fallout. And that's exactly what he examines here. He's got this superstar cast. Superstar cast. Uh, Gregory Peck in his prime. Ava Gardner, who's always fantastic. Fred Astaire outside of his element. He was my favorite out of all of them, to be honest. I, I would say he was the best performance. And a very young... Yeah, at a very young Anthony Perkins, right before Psycho, right before he was Norman Bates. So, yeah, I've got to agree, Fred Astaire as, you know, playing against type, especially because it takes a while for you to even get to him. Mm -hmm. He steals the entire thing, quite frankly. I think he was fantastic. He's a completely serious role. It just makes me want to know, like, okay, because there could be more roles like this where he's, like, straight-up dramatic, but because mm-hmm. I'm used to like again his his musical related stuff, but I, I, if there's more stuff like this where he's just playing a dramatic role, as bad as this sounds, this to me is like Frank Sinatra when he's acting, but better, like even better. It's like that same itch being scratched, but even more so. I would love to see Fred Astaire doing more stuff like this, and I hope it's out there. Well, you'll be pleased to know that Stanley Kramer did this quite a lot. He had Gene Kelly play a very serious role in Inherit the Wind, and he had Judy Garland Ooh. play a character similar, and Marlena Dietrich in Judgment at Nuremberg. So it was kind of one of his things that he did. And that's that's the problem with me. I've only seen a couple of his films. I Before this, I mean. I had seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is good, but not excellent, in my opinion. It's fine, yeah. It hasn't aged well, is the problem. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. There's also, it's a mad, 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 mad world, which <laughs> I think is good, but a little overrated, because I know this is, like, some people's, like, all-time favorite thing on Earth. I think it's, like, the star-studded cast, the hysteria... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. It's kind of like Around the World in 80 Days, but better, but like still not amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But 
that was like my experience before going into this. And for the most part, with On the Beach, I, I quite liked it. What kind of stood out to you, or good or bad? Well, first of all, that cinematography is excellent. Mm-hmm. Especially when there's like all those silhouette shots. The ability to like really toy around with depth of field. In a film like this, where it's like this panic and worry about what's going to happen if the world were to end... It's still done really well, especially because I feel like a, like in the 50s or 60s, Hollywood was very guilty with like the romanticizing or yeah. making this like really actor heavy. And On the Beach isn't really too far away from that, but there's still that concerned effort to make this look really nice or to at least have a couple of risks. Yeah, they did romanticize the book a lot. The book is very, very serious and sober, and it's one of my favorites, but they, they really, they did play up, like, the relationship between Peck and Gardner a bit in a way that didn't work with the book, but oh yeah, they showed some restraint, I think. Some, yeah, and that's exactly it. They didn't go full-blown, but they also paid attention to what could make this even better. Again, the cinematography is great. I feel mm-hmm. like the score is really good when it wasn't, like, Waltz kind of Mickey Mouse. 5,000 times. Exactly, exactly. It got nominated um, for score. How? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's the Academy for you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for the most part, even though this is still like very typically 50s epic disaster related stuff, I feel like there's some stuff that stood out, whether it's... Uh, it, it's all the stuff that felt a little left field. Like, again, the cinematography, which didn't feel typical. Um, Fred Astaire just owning it. Like, mm-hmm. it's all the little things like that that took this from what could have been decent to at least being, like, unique and, like, unforgettable to a degree where it's like, this is like every other 50s epic, but at the same time, I got a little bit extra out of it. And it gave me a little bit of a deeper understanding for Stanley Kramer to the point where maybe I will check out more of his stuff when I was extremely hesitant in the first place. For anyone looking for more Stanley Kramer, I'd recommend On the Beach, Judgment at Nuremberg, and Inherit the Wind. Those are my top three. I assigned this movie to you for two reasons. One was because of Kramer, because even though he was very much within the Hollywood machine and he wasn't a particularly innovative filmmaker, he was having these important social conversations in his time in a mainstream way that would have reached many, many viewers. And I think that's fascinating. Like, On the Beach premiered around the world, including Moscow, all at the same time because they felt the message was that important. There's even an award named after him to this day that is for people who promote activism through filmmaking. So very, very interesting filmmaker, even though I don't think he was a genius of film. The second is because of 1959, which I think there are some years that get a ton of credit for being pivotal years in film. There's 1939, 1967, and yet this one somehow flies under the radar, but it was enormous for smashing the barriers of film. There was room at the top, There was Suddenly Last Summer, Anatomy of a Murder, Some Like It Hot. These were all movies that broke the barriers, that changed things, and they were little chips out of the sort of coffin of that 50s repressed paternalism of Hollywood. It was when the change was beginning and nobody ever talks about it. On the Beach confronted the biggest taboo of them all, which was nuclear war, mass death, and the fear of the world ending. And how much did you know the premise going in? Nothing. And actually, now that you mention it, I didn't really think about it all that much. That's 
That's actually really true. Like, how much would the American audience be willing to throw money towards a movie about nuclear war in the late 50s? Like, that's that's stepping on some toes. That's actually a very valid point. And this was a possibility hanging over everybody's head at the time. Not not exactly the way it plays out in the movie, but the, the general idea. Yeah, well, you know, now that you're introducing me to a lot of this side of Stanley Kramer, I mean, he well, guess who's coming to dinner is definitely something similar where he was trying to tackle a specific subject matter that was still very taboo at the time. Their problem was that they had Sidney Poitier's character getting married to a person of no personality after meeting her 10 days ago, which was incredibly stupid. But anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, it's got its flaws, of course. <laughs> but uh, But I feel like... Yeah, I guess there is that importance that he was trying to challenge the subject matter within these films. Like, what could he show? Yeah. And clearly, a lot of people were in favor of it, because you you don't just get Gregory Peck and Fred Astaire like that. No, and everybody in that movie took it utterly seriously. And I admire that none of them attempted Australian accents. That's good. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) Thank goodness. Or it's like Gladiator, which takes place in Rome or like parts of Italy, yet they all sound English, but okay. Uh, So um, on that note, uh, we're going to get into our communal joint film that we watched. And Rachel, this is one that you also picked for everyone to watch. Uh, What is it and why did you pick it? Well, I was being a little selfish because this is a movie I missed in the lead up to Oscar season. It was sort of in the conversation at the very beginning, but then it didn't get a great reception. So it was kind of out. But it is quite a fine film. And that is Supernova starring Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci. It's about a couple, middle-aged couple. They've been together forever, Tucci and Firth, and they're on a road trip through England. And they're talking about their personal problems and sort of reflecting on their lives together. And it's beautiful. I mean, first of all, cinematography of England is fabulous. I want to go to England now when this is over. But Tucci and Firth, I don't know how well they know each other, if they've been friends for a long time or anything, but they managed to play people with history together in this movie. They managed to convey the years and years that they were together, and that must have been so incredibly difficult to pull off, but they seem utterly comfortable as a couple of decades. And oh, The natural chemistry was a highlight of the movie. They were excellent. I want to see them again and again in other movies. And may I just say, Stanley Tucci, for the most part, picks some really good stuff. It's frankly really nice to see Colin Firth in a good movie again. Like, really being, like, utilized for his his, uh, thespian capabilities. It's nice. And especially, like, both of them together. You can tell with some indie films, very limited setting, very small cast. So it's like, okay, this is an indie film. Will they truly shine? And I feel like given the subject matter, given the limitations, they nailed it. I feel like the two of them together were just fantastic and like solely worth watching just for those two and how they how they encompass everything. I feel like the wrong actors, maybe the wrong director. This could have been maybe well-intentioned, but not very good at all. This was great. And the script definitely had its clunky moments, you know, but they were able to get over that. Absolutely. Like, they make it almost like you want to see it again. Like, I agree when it's like, you know, this this chemistry is so real. You want to revisit it, not because you missed something the first time, but just to appreciate a lot of their interactions again and again and again. I like that it was was almost... It was very balanced and almost subtle for the most part when 
a story like this done by other people might have been a bit more dramatic. Like even the most tense moments, they pulled off and make it almost heartwarming, especially where the big kind of climax where there's this kind of reveal. It's like, you know, it's very tense and very, you know, it really pulls at the heartstrings, but they find a way to make it. I don't know what to call it. It's very. There's two ways to approach these situations. There's one way that's generally done and it's usually probably the wrong way. And they just did it the right way. Like I I can't really explain it better than that, but Mm -hmm. I also appreciated the fact that we're at the point in cinema where gay characters, them being gay has absolutely nothing to do with the story at all. No. Right. It was just like very natural. It wasn't like a plot device. Also had a great supporting cast too. Yeah, um, I found some of the best moments in the movie were the really mundane ones where they're just like randomly having a chat or they go to a party or they see family and you just got a sense of how their lives have been all this time and they really convey it quite well. Absolutely. I feel like overall it's a very solid indie feature with great performances, very emotional, um, worth seeing at least once because even if it's not your favorite thing, it doesn't hurt. There's nothing about this film that I feel like would be a bad risk. No. And Stanley Tucci steals the show on more than one occasion. When does he not, though? <laughs> of course. Even on BoJack Horseman, he's he's barely in it. Stanley Tucci, oh, Spotlight. He steals Spotlight as well. Stanley Tucci's the GOAT. He's amazing. We love him. <laughs> Although I will never stop picturing him with the blue hair from The Hunger Games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not even... If it was just blue, but it's not even just blue. It's, like, the way it looks, like, the style. Yeah. And like, he's cheerful yeah. leading up of the to this horrible Hunger Games spectacular. He's all, oh, yeah, I'm going to interview these kids and make them look awesome. And, oh, anyway, great series. Check him out in there, too. <laughs> yeah, or, like, even, like, the, the Lovely Bones, which I frankly thought was a painful movie. It's the terrible. only good thing about it the only good thing about it he's he's just always good so yeah if you want a solid stanley tucci feature check out supernova and then watch everything else he's in yes that is a must even uh midsummer's night dream which uh, he plays pan i believe so we could go uh, on for another half hour about him we should have a stanley tucci episode but that'd be uh, great that, that would be fantastic, but unfortunately, we do have to move on. We're going to do this for the first time. We're actually going to reveal our selections for one another on the pod. But first off, we are going to introduce what we're all going to watch and what you, if you want to take part, at home are going to watch. So unfortunately for everybody else, this is my pick this month. So it's, it's going to be strange. I apologize. I have never seen John Frankenheimer's Seconds starring Rock Hudson, and my lovely co-hosts are willing to watch this, which is fantastic. I'm down to watch anything. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be the, uh, the the film for the August smorgasbord, so you've got all of July to check this out. It's a nice, nice slim hour, 40 minutes. It's a cult favorite. We don't know much about this. We're going to go in with like zero expectations, zero knowledge. This is going to be fantastic. Otherwise, let's, for, for those listeners at home, 
we get more excited about what we're going to recommend rather than what we've already seen. So this is like Christmas for us. So who <laughs> wants to go first? <laughs> well, first of all, before that, I want to plug our social media. Uh, remember to rate, subscribe, and leave reviews wherever you follow us. And we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the KCOD. And we're especially playing around with Instagram these days. So check out what we've been posting. Yes, uh, Rachel, you've done a fantastic job interacting with followers and, and posing lovely questions and sharing our cinephilia with everybody. All of the stuff that we're obsessed with, movie facts, favorite movies, go go check us out. It's fantastic. If you're listening to us anyways, this is like the the, the butter on the popcorn. It's the extra good stuff at the, at the movie theater. So go check that out. All right. Uh, who wants their first uh, their first recommendation? I want mine. Okay. I know it's Rachel's turn to give me another one, and it's always interesting when she gives me something. Okay. So, James, do you like silent movies? I watch a silent film. Okay. So you are getting Hexan, and this is a Swedish Danish. I don't know even how to put it in a genre, but we'll just call it a kind of horror film as a shorthand. It is fantastic. It is weird as hell. It is not your typical silent movie, and I think you'll really enjoy it. I know for sure it's on Criterion. I don't know where, but I've, I'm, I've heard the name of this before. Yeah, it made one of Andreas's lists, I think. It made my documentary list. It's part documentary. It's supposed to be this kind of serious, unserious look at how mental health was being treated at the time. Kind mixed of. with some crazy stuff, so... Yeah, you're you're in for a treat. This is this is uh this is one of the most unique film experiences you're ever gonna have. I think. Oh, I'm I'm ready. Yeah, and it's I, I'm pretty I'm almost certain it's on Criterion, so that's gonna be yours. Um, Rachel, since you've given yours, I'm gonna give you one. Ooh, tell me. Okay, first off, before I go into my thought process, how familiar with Bernardo Bertolucci are you? Very little. Initially, I was going to give you The Conformist, but I was like, wait, what is something that Rachel and I share? We love the Oscars, so I'm going to introduce you to what is quite possibly the most underrated Best Picture winner, maybe ever. That's Bertolucci's The Last Emperor, which I think is just gorgeous. I think it's just magnificent. It's this brilliant epic about the last days of the Forbidden City and Puyi, who was the titular Last Emperor. I've heard about it, but I've never seen it, so I'm excited to check it out. I think it's one of the most daring Best Picture winners they've ever had. It's, like, just on, on like, the the precipice of Art House, almost. It's as it's as mainstream as Art House can get, I think. And, yeah, that's, that's going to be yours. Great. Okay, I guess it's your turn in the hot seat, Andreas. What's mine? What's mine? All right, so... I've decided to go with The Poor and Hungry, which is the debut film of Craig Brewer. Wow, I I don't even think I've heard of this. What is this? This is a low-budget film that he made and released in 2000. But yeah, this was shown at a film festival and didn't get any distribution other than that. Five years later, he would have a critical and commercial smash with uh, Hustle & Flow. That's where I know his name. Okay. Yep. Yeah, he did Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, more recently, Dolomite is my name. Right. Yeah, it's a very, very well done first film. And it's just something that I love. And I figured, you know what? I'm going to pick something I know he's never heard of, but also kind of something in this kind of space I'm introducing you to with all these low budget indie films that you've never even heard of or seen. Well, I love it because, again, this is this is an untapped well for me. Like This is like all uncharted territory. So I, I greatly appreciate it. 
And yeah, instead of having weekly recommendations, uh, you could check out basically these three films. So um, The Last Emperor, Haxon, or however it's actually pronounced, and The Poor and Hungry. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Do check us out on our socials. And uh, until the next episode or next Smorgasbord, that was the K-Cut, and now we're going into the L-Cut. <laughs>